0: to be speaking to the founder of Manta Cares today. Samira, tell us about Manta Cares and why you're doing it.
1: So Manta Cares is a community, Udkarsh, of um, anybody impacted by cancer. It Mm. specifically is for people who support patients and survivors like me. So the caregivers, our friends, our family who really stand by us um, through the cancer treatment journey. The reason I built it or I'm building it right now is um, I myself am a survivor. And and I fortunately have access to at least some resources, but Mm -hmm. my brother, my mom, my dad, my partner really don't. And they don't have access to good content. They don't have access to tailored support. They don't have access to uh, other people going through it. And that's part of the reason why I wanted to build this.
0: So is it like a community for those who've been impacted by cancer and caregivers and the larger ecosystem was dealing with it? Yes. Okay. So Samira, it's, how did all of this happen? I remember coming to see you at Stanford in 2019 and that was, you look perfectly healthy. We had a great walk around the campus and I was telling you about my, you know, plans in personal and professional life. And then next thing I send you my wedding invite for 2020 and uh, you reply saying that uh, your life is turned around. Walk me through everything that happened.
1: So when you saw me, I think it was 2019 at Stanford, um, I graduated uh, with a degree in design and then was trying to figure out what, what was the next step in my professional chapter. Um, my partner Arco and I, our birthdays are two days apart. So we've been talking <laughs> <to that show. laughs> And we decided to go to the Philippines. Uh, I, I've been diving since I was 10 years old. I, I love the water. It, it gives me kind of a sense of peace. And thankfully, Arco uh, also dives. So we went <laughs> on a diving trip to the Philippines. And um, on one of my dives, I, I pulled uh, my calf muscle. It's pretty common, common when you're scuba diving. I uh, came back to the U.S. And for some reason, the pain in my leg just wouldn't, wouldn't go away. And had scheduled an appointment uh, to go. I was at Kaiser, a healthcare system in the U.S. It's this kind of Northern California system, and I was part mm. of Kaiser. And uh, scheduled an appointment with a random doctor to get my leg checked out. The, this
0: is in Philippines.
1: This is in the U.S. I came back. Okay. This was like maybe days after we we touched back in in the U.S. And in diving, there's this like very very rare thing that can happen where if you're under pressure and then you take a flight, you can develop blood clots and okay. it typically starts in your leg. So I, because the pain was still there, I, I was like, okay, I should probably go get it checked out. Um, the night before my appointment, um, I was feeling feverish and I was kind of hugging myself and kind of stumble across this like hard thing in my armpit. And I was like, ah, I don't know what that is. It doesn't hurt, but there's something there. So Um, I was like, oh, I'm going to the appointment tomorrow. I'll just show show the doc that as well. So I walk in, the doctor looks at the leg and he's like, look, I I need you to get an emergency ultrasound for the leg. And I was like, Hmm. okay, what about this like thing in my armpit? He goes, eh, you're young. You have no history. I I would just ignore it. But since you're going for an ultrasound, I'm going to put the order in. And if you want, you can, you can go get it ultrasounded so I I, the doc wasn't worried right he was like oh leg leg you need to focus on the leg Hmm. so I'm waiting there uh, in the waiting room for a few hours and um, had like kind of dismissed the armpit thing and um, as I'm walking into the sort of technician's office to get the leg ultrasound I'm like this like this nagging feeling that I should just get both ultrasounded and Last minute, I tell the technician, hey, can you just ultrasound the armpit too? So she she's like, yeah, okay, whatever. Um, a few days later, the leg is fine. They're like, oh, don't worry about it. We didn't find anything. But then they're like, hey, we want you to come back for the armpit. And I'm like, hmm, "What? what is going on? Um, so I had at the same time started a job at a, a medical diagnostic company, which I'm uh, currently at. Um, the diagnostic company, it, it was 80 people, I had joined as the head of product and we were at this leadership offsite and I'm sitting next to the chief medical officer and um, there's like a break and i he, he's an infectious disease doc. So I'm asking him, hey, you know, my I, I found this thing in my armpit. It feels like a swollen lymph node, but these docs want me to come back and get it ultrasounded and he goes, he asks me a series of questions, um, things like, is it hard? Is it mobile? Can you like, feel it? How big is it? Um, and after all these questions, he looks at me and he goes, look, if you need an oncologist, call me. OK, and I'm sitting there in this leadership office, <laughs> kind of being like, did not expect that to be the question hmm. I was going to get asked. So a few days later, I go back for my follow-up visit and they do an ultrasound again. They do a mammogram and, um, they do the third ultrasound and this time the technician's doing it and she leaves the room and a doc walks in and she repeats it. And I'm going, I've been here for like six hours, guys, what, what is going on? And, um, the doc looks at me and she goes, I need to biopsy this right now. And, um. Thankfully, I've worked in healthcare long enough that I, I look at her I'm like, okay, how much will the biopsy cost? And she doesn't have an answer in the U.S. Nobody
0: has an answer to that question. Isn't everything covered? I know in the U.S. it's really complicated, but uh, in many countries that uh, I've lived in, that's not the case.
1: No, the U.S. is pretty complicated. Um, so at this point in time, I had just started this new job. And the way in, in the U.S. it works is if I start in December, my health insurance for my new job kicks in the next month. Hmm. So my health insurance would start in January 1 and we're in like December 20th at this point in time. And I was on student insurance. So student insurance based on what I had was kind of the, a lot of young people do this, right? Like you're otherwise healthy, you don't need fancy insurance. So you, you go into these, what they call a high deductible plan where mm-hmm. the expectation is that the coverage would be low because you're supposed to be healthy. So I was in this high deductible plan, which meant that up until I hit like $10,000 or something crazy, um, the insurance company wouldn't cover it. So I knew that on so December 20th and Jan one, my insurance is changing. So in the U S your clock changes again. So Jan one, everything resets.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I was like, I, I don't want to get a biopsy right now. I might as well wait till Jan. Um, so the doctor looks at me as I'm completely insane. She goes, <laughs> uh, I would not recommend you moving this. I was like, look, will, I, will anything happen between now and Jan? She can't give me a straight answer. So I'm like, okay, I, I, need, I need to think about whether I want a biopsy and I'll, I'll call you guys back up. So okay. she very uh, unhappily lets me go. And I call up the chief medical officer and like, look, they want me to do a biopsy. So I think I need to talk to an oncologist.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So he goes, yeah, I think you do. Um, I'll connect you with someone. So he connects me with someone at Stanford. Um, and this oncologist, uh, I, I learned many months later, had had actually retired. So he comes out of retirement <laughs> to take my case. Um, and he calls me and we have a series of conversations. And I ask him, I'm like, look, I, I'm supposed to be flying a day later to go to China with my family, can I do that trip and come back? And he goes, yes, the odds are you will. You have breast cancer. I can't tell you that conclusively until we do a biopsy. You are young and you don't have any of the risk factors. But I have seen this now for many, many years. So go ahead, take your trip, but then come back and get mentally ready for a, a different journey. So mm. I leave, I go to China. Uh, Spend the time I helped my family, come back. And then in January, uh, over a series of couple of weeks, I went through a whole host of new testing, got a biopsy, and then got formally diagnosed with uh, breast cancer.
0: And once you did, um, did you quit your job immediately? I would imagine that would have been the logical thing to do and figure out how did you deal with that?
1: Uh, I did not quit to my job. In the U.S., your insurance is contingent on your job. So if you quit, your insurance goes. Uh-huh. Breast cancer, actually any cancer treatment, is uh, a lot of money in the
0: U.S. It's a lot. How much are we talking about, just out of curiosity?
1: So my insurance bills were roughly $3 million year one.
0: $3 million year one. Got it.
1: So the amount that I paid personally out of my pocket, of course, was far less. But the mm. amount insurance paid was about three million. Oh, that was so two, probably a million and a half.
0: So safe to say that very, 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 very few people would actually be able to afford it, right? Without insurance. All right. So stay. You you have to stay in your job. Okay. You've been diagnosed with cancer. Uh, what do you do next? How does your family react? What what's the Chatter in the living room.
1: So I I don't think I told my family. So I was in China with my family. I didn't tell them. My brother, who lives in the Bay Area, knew, my partner knew. Um, so before the biopsy results came out, this this oncologist had basically told me, he was, look, I've now done a physical exam on you, I can tell you that this is cancer. Um so the day I got diagnosed was kind of honestly a little comical <laughs> because so in, in, when you get diagnosed, there are a lot of tests you have to do There's there's a lot, it's not, it's not one test and you're done. You do, you do an ultrasound, mammogram, PET scan, uh, MRI, a CT scan, blood tests, genetic testing. There, there's a lot. Um, and I've just started this new job. So I didn't wanna tell anyone until I sort of knew exactly what I had and what that meant. So for a lot of it was actually kept to myself. Um, so I go in for a genetic counseling uh, appointment where they basically tell you in your case, what type of genetic testing you need to do, et cetera. And I am at Stanford and I had a work meeting at seven. So I'm in the waiting room from seven to nine on these calls for work. Nine o'clock was my appointment at 8.30, the clinic calls me being like, hey, we need to reschedule you. I'm Mm -hmm. like, I'm in your waiting room, (laughs) I'm sitting sitting here, I'm like in front of you. They go, oh, oh, so you're here already? I'm like, yes, you can't reschedule me at 8.30 for a 9 o'clock appointment, like that makes no Mm -hmm. sense. So the counselor walks me and she's like, okay, normally we wait for biopsy results to come out before we talk to people. I was like, okay, but they're not out and I'm happy to have a conversation. So we're mid-session. My phone is like facing me and I see my oncologist call me. Hmm. And the counselor sees the oncologist call and she goes, I think you should take that. I was like, okay. So I am. I go out, take the call from the oncologist. And I'm, I'm, this is all happening at Stanford. I'm on the second floor. My oncologist is on the first floor. And there's no wow. network. <laughs> so my oncologist call is just like broken up like, like i'm picking up every other word and he goes i know you're in your genetic counseling appointment i know i've called you out of your appointment to tell you that, that your biopsy results are positive um you have stage two B breast cancer um and it is what's called triple positive positive. triple positive okay. About 25% of breast cancers are triple positive. And it essentially is a funny, it's a funny one because it's not the most aggressive. It's not the least aggressive, but it has about at least two different um, biological pathways. Hmm. So treatment can get pretty complicated. Um, Anyway, so he tells me all this and I go straight back into my genetic counseling appointment. And the counselor is like, she's shell-shocked she's never had to deal with someone who just heard so Hmm. she's sitting there kind of panicking being like should we stop this appointment should we keep going oh my god you just heard your life is going to get completely crazy so i'm sitting down like please calm down i'm fine (laughs) just let's get through this appointment because Hmm. i then have to go to work so i finished an appointment got in my car drove to work um Went through the full day, didn't tell anyone. Um, And then on the way back, I told my brother and my partner that we should meet for dinner. Met them for dinner, gave them the news. And I was like, look, I need need four or five days to figure out what this means before we can tell the family. Hmm. So I took my five days, did my research, kind of figured out what it meant, then called my family and told them. So uh, I think the hardest call was my brother. Uh, though my younger brother in India, he was definitely the hardest call. He's like the softy of the family and he that was the hardest call.
0: What did you tell him during the call?
1: Um, I told him I had cancer. I told him I'd be fine. Uh, I told him that he should wait and not get in the next flight (laughs) because that was going to be the the reaction.
0: Hmm. So now your family has to figure, you know, perhaps the most uh, threatening situation that you all have faced as a group. So, what do you all do?
1: Um, I think the reaction was probably different for different members of my family. Um, my mom was in Pune at the time. She's a, a believer in the spiritual group of J.B. Vaswani. So, she she sort of relies on that for um, spiritual and medical strength. Mm -hmm. I think my father was more on the, how do we get to the right opinion, like the medical opinion side of it. So he starts doing a lot of work on second opinions. Uh, Raghav goes straight into doing research. Um, Raghav is my brother in India. Uh, Rohan was my—I mean—is my brother in, in the Bay Area, so I think he was more practical, trying to help me like manage everything else. Um, we were in the middle of a move from San Francisco to California uh, to Redwood City, closer to Stanford. So he was like helping me manage the move and everything else. Um, so I think the initial reaction was different for different people. Mm. I think fortunately, with question this one, I—I'm a bioengineer by training, I. I've worked in oncology before, so I, I sort of knew enough to know that breast cancer is actually early stage breast cancer. I should I should be clear: early stage breast cancer is no longer truly a death sentence. Okay. It's not. So pancreatic cancer, on the contrary, is it's the odds of survival are pretty low. With early stage breast cancer you will survive like five years is, is good Like you, you will get through five years for the most part now it's not a hundred percent but um, of all the types of cancer you can get early stage breast cancer
0: is, is one good. of the less uh, troublesome ones, is what I gather right because Steve Jobs had pancreatic cancer right yes. yeah and that that was hard to beat so okay so that's going on you have to continue with your job you have to go through the treatment and uh, it's a $3 million treatment for year one. You know, Thankfully, you've figured out insurance. So what does that process look like? What does a day or a week in your life going through cancer treatments, work calls, and all the emotional challenges that you have to go through? What does that look like? And who's helping you through all of this?
1: Um, it looks very different based on the week. Mm-hmm. So I sadly don't have a standard week, but I can walk you through at least at a high level, what that meant
0: for me. Any week, pick a week and walk me through it. Perhaps the most challenging week would be great to listen to.
1: So the most challenging week was probably uh, during chemotherapy. So I I got everything. Every tool in the toolkit was deployed, deployed on me. Uh, hmm. so I got chemotherapy, radiation, surgery, a year of targeted infusions, I'm on a 10 year course of hormone therapy. So I got, I got everything. But chemo was probably, probably the toughest to get through. Um, My first cycle of chemo was pre-COVID. So the first cycle, everyone showed up. My family was there. My friends showed up. Um, The nurse in the chemo ward actually had to throw us out because we were making so much of a ruckus. Hmm. Uh, So it was, it was rough, but it was lighthearted. My friends showed up. It was, Somewhat, I mean, I look back and it was truly, truly a community showing up and it was very heartwarming. Um, I had chemo every three weeks. So you have chemo on a Friday, you wait three weeks and you get the next cycle. And uh, chemo, at least for me, was it starts out day one is rough, but the real sort of low point happens day four, day five. Hmm. When everything kind of everything hits you. And then you you like hit this like low point and you slowly, slowly, slowly start to recover. And the reason they give you three weeks is they, they need to regain strength before they hit you again. So imagine you're in a boxing match, you get knocked out, you have this like timeout period, and then you get back up and they hit you again. That's kind of the way chemo's designed.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so I had three weeks between cycles. And my second cycle was probably my worst. Um, I had pretty severe reactions to cycle one. Um, One of the supportive drugs is to keep your immune system in check. But that drug, what it does is it activates your bones. And you go through intense bone pain. So my bone pain had been really, really bad cycle one. So cycle two, we said no to getting the uh, supportive medication on the immune system.
0: So you have some agency on the processes while they're going on. Is that fair to say? Uh,
1: I don't think so. (laughs) Very little agency over what happens. Hmm. I think the oncologists try their level best to educate you, but there's a lot of information coming your way. It's quite a bit because it's not just what chemo drug you're on. It's, all of the supportive medication you need to do, right? So when you get chemo, you get everything from nausea, insomnia, fatigue, cognitive chemo. It's called chemo brain. It's your brain just feels foggy. Um, you get bone pain. You can get uh, lots of stomach issues. You can get skin issues. You can get eye issues. You can get hair problems. You can get, I mean, think chemo is kind of this chemo will kill anything that is growing in your body. So it affects everything it affects your nails it affects your fingers it affects your joints it affects your it affects everything so there's a lot of even just to manage the side effects of chemo they're, they, they're like hand you binders of information and you're trying to make sense of it all and it's 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 a lot so i don't know about agency um, i think patients can gain agency over time i think with some different tools and resources. I do think you can be an agency, but I don't think the default is agency.
0: Is that something that you're trying to do with MantaCare? Like what does agency mean and uh, why does MantaCare exist?
1: Uh, you're totally right. That is a huge part of why MantaCare is today. For me, agency is probably the most important piece of this entire journey. Hmm because i do think cancer is the ultimate loss of control over your life it, it really is i i have never felt more out of control of my life than while going through treatment the diagnosis is tough but i think treatment itself can be very very difficult to navigate yeah and it's uh, you lose choice over very basic things And I think regaining that choice, regaining that confidence that it is your body, it is your treatment, it is your decision, along with the oncologist, along with their guidance, but it is ultimately yours, I think is something that's very difficult to remember.
0: Hmm. What was your caregiver ecosystem like?
1: Um, One of my mentors uh, probably gave me the best piece of advice on the caregiver ecosystem piece. So he sadly lost both of his children to cancer when they were very young. And um, he's fortunately been a caregiver of mine for many years. So when I got diagnosed, I called him. and I was like, hey, I I, I just got diagnosed. Do you have any guidance for me? Hmm. And he goes, yes. You need to think about your cancer treatment like a... McKinsey project I used to be a McKinsey consultant and I was like he goes think of it as work streams and you need to appoint people in your caregiving circle into work streams because people don't know how to help you everyone wants to show up everyone wants to help but the reality is they have no idea what they can do to help you and you need to appoint yourself project manager and then give people specific work streams so that was probably the best piece of advice I got so my brother Rohan was my communication director. Uh, mm-hmm. My mom was in charge of the kitchen. So everything nutrition went through her. Uh, my dad was in charge of sort of all the supportive care, right? So you, there's tons of information out there. If you eat this, you'll feel better. If you drink this juice, your nutrition goes up. It's all of these like, supportive care things. So my dad was in charge of that. Um, my brother Raghu was in charge of morale. Uh, mm-hmm. One of my friends was a fitness director who was in charge of making sure I worked out all the time. Um, my partner was in charge of the house because everybody was living under the same sort of two bedrooms. Um, so he was in charge. In of Red
0: Bull City.
1: City. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So my family from India had shown up. So I, there were a lot of people in charge of a lot of things. And I think that was probably one of the best piece of advice I got, because had that not been the case, it would have been utter chaos. Yeah. In
0: the when camp- did- yeah, sorry, please, uh, I interrupted
1: you. I was going to say the caregivers probably lose a lot of agency too, because I'm the one in the appointments, right? And it's happening to me. So I know what I'm going through, but the caregivers just see it. They watch, like my mom is watching her young daughter kind of not be herself week after week. My partner is witnessing his best friend and his partner for life unable to be there in any way, shape or form. Um, So it's just, I think it's a loss of agency across the board.
0: Of course, which is why caregivers are a key component of Manta Cares, right? I'm not sure if there is a caregiver's community. um, Is there, like, is there one that you're aware of?
1: So I think a lot of the hospitals try and do uh, (coughs) caregivers, I think sometimes there are caregiver support groups that happen. Hmm. But it's local to the hospital. I think what makes this unique is, I think I think the pandemic probably shifted a lot of things. Right, the pandemic strikes after my first cycle of chemo, and all the supportive care goes away because everything's in person, and and the cancer community is in, is largely immunocompromised. Right, so the very first things to shut down are the cancer groups because they can't service you in person because you are a at-risk population, even for COVID. <coughs> So patient support goes away, caregiver support absolutely goes away. So while I think there are caregiver communities out there, and I think people have started to do it, I don't think there is one quite doing what I'm I'm trying to do here with my family. Because I do think matters. The fact that I uh, grew up in India matters. The fact that my mom is coming from India to the U.S. matters. Um, I think all of that matters. So to find support, I think it needs to be personalized, it needs to be relevant to your background, it needs to be relevant in a way that can touch you and recognize you. So, uh,
0: What are the levers that you're thinking of? How, what's your vision for Malta Cares? Where should this be in five years?
1: So I see Malta Cares as a global community that can have many subgroups in it, kind of like mm-hmm where there could be a subgroup for mothers who are caring for young kids. There could be a subgroup of daughters who are caring for their moms who might be going through breast cancer. So I do see this broader community, but with sort of subgroups. I think a huge part of this for me is to take the information that is available today, mostly to the research community and the academic community, and make it easier for patients and caregivers and survivors to understand it and to leverage it. So that's a big part of it. The third lever is I I feel um, there are a lot of support out there today, but it's very intangible. And my goal is to make it tangible, to develop tools and resources that can actually help you navigate treatment and survivorship. And when I say tangible, I genuinely mean um, tangible. I mean something that you can take with you, structures, frameworks, to think through what's happening, to Mm. process what's going on, to then um, reset your life after the sort of dark, dark periods are behind you. Um, it's to rebuild that new life that for the fortunate ones is granted.
0: Yeah, you know, makes perfect sense. During the pandemic, you also came up with a planner, right? Um, okay. What's all of that about? Is it um, one of the products that uh, you'd always thought of? Um?
1: <laughs> I don't know if I always thought of it. Um, I think, so you asked me a question earlier on, which was, what was your darkest week like or your most challenging week? So the planner came out of that most challenging week. Um,
0: Tell me everything about it and show me the planner if you can.
1: I can show it to you. So this is what it looks like today. That's actually my, my planner. Um, it's this little small thing, looks like a moleskin book about the same size and dimension of it, spiral bound and I can, I can open it up and show you in a minute. But where this comes from is it comes from that dark week because I, I really felt out of control. Um, I come back from my second cycle and this cycle, unlike my previous chemo cycle, I was all alone because it was chemo, uh, it was COVID time. So everything shut down and I come home and can't sleep and I'm feeling just uh, very, very not myself. And I stay up all night and I was thinking through what, what my life was looking like and what it would look like for the next two years. And I I realized I needed um, structures and organization because without that, uh, there really isn't even a semblance of control. Um, So I remember setting it up just for myself and sent it to a local printer. And I was like, hey, can you give me one copy of this? So she looks at it and she prints a couple and she responds to me saying, hey, look, I was printing it for you. And I realized this might help someone else too. So here you go. There are some more free copies for you. Give it away to others mm-hmm. who need it. How thoughtful. Uh, her name is Joan. Uh, she's my printer even today in, in California. Mm-hmm. So I take the other copies. And I, when, you, when you're when you a cancer patient, you get, you get exclusive license to this club no one wants to belong to, but you are in this exclusive club. Um, so you, you end up meeting other members all the time. So I gave the other two copies and started taking appointments with me. And the oncologists and the nurses kept giving me really good feedback. They're like, why don't you tweak this, make it that, do this, do that, change this, this is great. So they're giving me feedback and um, to give you context, I'm going into the hospital maybe every other every other day. At this point, so there's a lot of touch points with the health system. And I iterate on it, I print 50 more, and I gave half, I sold half. Um, people bought it off me, and it was a big mix. Oncologists bought it for their patients. Some patients bought it, some caregivers bought it, um, and they kept giving me feedback. I took that, iterated on it again, printed 50 more, same thing happened. So this version of it is the fourth iteration of it. Um, and this one launched in September of last year and we sold 500 all in the US mm-hmm. and it's all it is for cancer patients so this is uh, this is a pretty good example of what I mean by tangible support because it's one place for everything and it is comprehensive and it has lots of structures in there so um, for example when you're making decisions around uh, cancer treatment there's a lot of information that people forget that you have agency, you need you, the patient, along with the guidance of your care team and your loved ones, you are an essential part to the decision. So it has things like decision-making tools in there. So it helps you think through what are all of the options? What is your most aggressive option? What's your least aggressive option? What are the pros and cons? How do you think through it? So it's very simple things. But I do think it helps patients think through um <clears throat> in a way. And then the this other This is part being
0: of powerful. This is powerful to listen to and watch. Yeah. Please go on.
1: Um, the other part of this is and the um it has something called visit notes at the back, which is it prompts you to list your questions for your care team, list out your symptoms, take notes on your appointment and then follow up care. And um, before the planner, I had notes back of like, envelopes, receipts, laptop, phone. It was everywhere mm. and when you're going through treatment um, yeah, this is, there's a lot coming your way. So to remember which piece of paper I got my notes in, it was honestly impossible. But now over the last two years, I have all of my notes in these little physical books and I can flip back and tell you what my oncologist told me in May which is that alone I think is a huge part of agency because I now don't have to like fret when my oncologist is like, hey, did we change your uh, dosing after the cycle? And I'm like, why are you asking me this question? (laughs) Shouldn't this be in my notes? And it might be, but it might not. So the, the impetus is really on you, the patient to stay organized and-
0: Yeah. So let's try and visualize the Manta Cares world. So there is planning, there is awareness, there is agency, there is product, there is content, there is a community. So it's like a fairly macro vision that uh, we're chasing here, right? Um, What would success look like for you? And what what can people expect listening to the Manta Cares content or? reading or consuming uh, MantaCare's content?
1: Okay so let's start. I think there are a couple of questions in there. So I'll start with the first one which is what is the end goal? Eventually I want anybody getting diagnosed with cancer anywhere in the world to be given access to MATACARE's Planner and then access to MetaCare's community at the point of diagnosis and when I say anyone, I truly mean anyone. I mean the patient and the caregiver, because in a lot of cases, the caregiver is the one keeping keeping organized, keeping track of everything, right? So that's my ultimate goal. In terms of how we get there, I think the building is, is slow, and it's a long path to getting there, but I want to start with focusing on the caregiver, because I think there is a lot of content for the patient out there today, but there really isn't much on the caregiver. There's nothing out there that really helps you think through, Hey, my friend got diagnosed with cancer. What do I do? Mm. Um, my daughter got diagnosed with cancer. What do I do? My mom is getting diagnosed with cancer. She's nine, 9,000 miles away. How do I help her? How do I support her? I'm living in a different country or my, um, uh, sister got diagnosed with cancer and i am gonna go visit her for one month what is the one thing two things i can do to alleviate some suffering so i I think it's about being practical with tips and resources in terms of content Hmm. i also think it is about giving people access to each other it's about creating that platform where they can rely on each other right because i as much as i want to try i don't know what it's like to have a sibling who has cancer i'm i'm (coughs) the baby What's like to be the patient? Right, I really don't, and I know there are things my siblings will never tell me, but they might tell other siblings, and they might yeah. find strength in other people who've been in the same shoes as them. So I think it's about giving access to them for other people like them, uh, which I think is very important.
0: Yeah, community is the essence of mental Care. So thank you, Sabira, for being um, so forthright about your challenges, and this was the first episode of a long, I would say, digital journal slash novel slash experiential process that uh, Manticare has embarked upon. And uh, I wish you the very best, and I'm thrilled that we are partnering on scaling this and building it step by step.
1: Thank you, Akash. I, I really genuinely don't think we'd be able to do this without you guys, so I truly, truly appreciate it. This podcast, show notes, and newsletter is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice, and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of information on this podcast or any materials linked from this blog is at the user's own risk. The content here is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions.